Hello and welcome again to another T-Rex Talk, another audio-only T-Rex Talk podcast. Uh, at this point, we should probably come up with a name so that you can tell the difference between a one-hour T-Rex Talk that was live-streamed onto YouTube and then backed up as a podcast versus these MP3 files that I record for the podcast. Although, maybe it becomes obvious to you, if you have the podcast app or are listening on Spotify or something like that, it's pretty easy for you to see which episodes are one hour long and which episodes are 20 minutes long, which currently is the best differentiator. Um, I'm not sure what a good time limit is or, or what you guys are actually looking for, but uh, I generally have ideas which uh, last about 20 minutes uh, when they come to talking about them. And one of the ideas that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of weeks is automation, mostly because we're building a lot of autom automation equipment uh, at the shop. We are, we're currently upgrading our production pipeline, and that involves building a bunch of custom tooling, and a bunch of stuff is getting automated. Now, uh, it's not getting completely automated. We're not going to be able to make holsters without the aid of humans. Uh, we're not, we don't actually have anything that runs lights out in the shop at this point, but uh, a bunch of steps do get more automated. So the, uh, the holster bending process is one uh, that's getting fairly automated. A human is still going to have to pick up the holster, put it into the heater, wrap it around the form, but then instead of using his, his puny human fingers to open up a clamp, he's going to be able to have a pneumatic clamp that he operates with a foot pedal. So, so a big chunk of the process is more automated than it was in the past, even though there's, uh, there's still a human doing uh, m most of the work. Uh, his, his time isn't going to be drastically freed up because he's going to have to work a, a normal workday, but... Uh, he's probably going to be able to bend twice as many holsters per hour, and uh, it's going to require a little bit less uh, finger strength uh, to, to do the job of bending the holsters. And that's just one station. Every, every station is getting some level of upgrade. Uh, every station should be more efficient. Every station should be easier. I think every station is going to be safer, although it's hard to say. Uh, the guys at Bending find... Uh, new and interesting ways of making making tools less safe. So uh, so we'll have to see. But when when this uh, this discussion about automation generally arises, people are talking more about uh, stuff that is completely automated. So there's a job which uh, used to be done by a person, and now it's done by a robot. So this is this is the 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 anti automation discussion that always comes up. One person's job gets completely taken away. One person now has no job. Even though throughout history, that's not exactly how automation has been implemented. It's usually been a completely, uh, it's usually been a completely different way where humans still need to be heavily, heavily involved. But what often does happen is automation comes along and it makes it possible for one guy to do two or three people's jobs. And so two or three people leave, even though a human is still involved in their job and ends up being uh, fewer people actually doing the work. And that is generally what leads to uh, the complaints about automation destroying jobs and being bad for uh, the economy and being bad for the labor force and et cetera, et cetera. And this is a conversation that goes back a long ways. Uh, but the most uh, interesting uh, time that it happened is probably with the Luddites. Um, this is back in the very late 1700s in the British textile industry. And I'm sure that you remember the Luddites. They were the guys who were smashing up the new automatic looms because the automatic looms could make fabric so much faster than the manual looms. They were sure that they were all going to lose their jobs. And uh, it turned into massive, massive riots 
And uh, a number of people were killed, actually, in, in the riots and in the protests. Lots of looms were destroyed. And then eventually the government actually stepped in. The government of England stepped in. And, and I can't believe this, uh, except except that it makes sense for the time. They actually made breaking uh, equipment uh, in the textile industry. They made frame-breaking a capital crime. So you could be hung uh, for smashing a automated loom. Now, I would like to point out that the Luddites were, in fact, wrong. Smashing up the, uh, the equipment of their employers, the private property of their employers, is, in fact, a crime. But it's not a capital crime. The, the government does not have the jurisdiction to make something like that a capital offense or to hang people who were doing it. But that, that is, uh, that's how the government handled things. And there were a bunch of other problems going on at the time. Uh, in the previous episode, when we were talking about flashlights, I mentioned that tools... They never get invented or implemented in a vacuum. They're they're always the product of some level of cultural understanding. There's some level of problem that the tool is attempting to solve that has a cultural or, or civilization-based element to it. And the way that the inventor of the tool wants to solve the problem is going to reflect some element of his culture, or his belief system, or his worldview. And when we're talking about uh, this time in history... There are massive changes in the world, some of which have happened, uh, most of which are about to happen. The very end of the 1700s, a bunch of stuff has happened. America is no longer a colony of the British Empire. It is now its own country, a rapidly growing, economically flourishing country. Stuff is getting mechanized. There's beginning to be a larger and larger middle class in different parts of the world. And we now are beginning to see uh, automation come to some of these giant factories. Now, What's happening in the textile industry is a tiny, tiny thing that's happening compared to what's going to happen over the next uh, 20, 30, 40 years of world history as far as steam engines and factories and, and other types of automation go. But at the very beginning of the 1800s, the very end of the 1700s, you have this issue where the Luddites... Uh, are smashing the new technology so that it cannot replace their jobs. Now, the Luddites were, were wrong in a, in a different way. Uh, none of their jobs actually got replaced in the long term. In fact, I don't even know what would have happened in the short term. I think that a lot of those guys uh, who were willing to smash up equipment may have been problematic employees uh, to begin with. And it's very, very possible that the owners of these factories, who also demonstrated themselves to be problematic individuals in the way that they handled some of these riots, uh, yeah, there were some major, major problems that existed in that area at that time, but it wasn't directly related to the tools. And the other interesting thing that happens is after all of the riots get quelled, after the British government uh, hangs uh, unjustly, hangs many Luddites for breaking equipment, uh, after all of this kind of settles down and shakes out, the textile industry is actually far, far, far larger than it ever was before the automated looms came along. Uh, And here's why. The reason for that is the jobs that the automated looms took away was not, uh, those were not jobs of people working in factories. The jobs that that the automated looms took away were all of the incredibly poor people sitting at home in Britain, knitting their own socks and darning their socks over and over and over and over again because they couldn't afford to buy factory-made clothing. Those were the jobs that the, the looms took away. They didn't take those jobs away from actual employees and actual workers. They took those jobs away from the poorest people who really desperately wanted to not do those jobs anymore. 
The lower classes of England really wanted to have cheaper factory clothing so that they didn't have to make their own clothing. And so the the textile industry grew uh, tremendously. So the Luddites were were wrong in that respect as well. Uh, And in fact, uh, it's not just the textile industry. As greater automation comes uh, to those factories in England, you see you see the city of London grow from uh, about 1 million people in the year 1800 uh, to about 2.5 million people in uh, the year 1850. So the number of people that left the country uh, to come to London to work factory jobs once automation was available, I mean, it's insane. It's insane the number of jobs that were created by automation and the amount of drudgery uh, elsewhere in the country that was eliminated by automation. Now, again, there's massive cultural issues that come along with this. They're not directly related to the technology, but they are important. And you can see the different cultures approach this in a different way. So, for example, if you look at America, America at exactly the same time is experiencing very similar amounts of, uh, of growth and automation in different ways. So we use steam power to do a bunch of stuff in America. We definitely build factories, uh, giant steel mills, all kinds of very interesting stuff about the same uh, type of stuff about the same time period as England. But but instead of everybody leaving the country to come live in the cities, in America, you actually more see the opposite. You see steam power creating gigantic railroads that allow more people to live in the country, that allow towns and cities to be much further away from population centers. And uh, it just is an interesting uh, display of a difference in culture uh, that takes these two civilizations in slightly different directions with with basically the same technology. But anyway, that's that's kind of a rabbit hole. The main thing that I was going to talk about is when people push back against uh, automation, and we talked a little bit about um, this in the the last uh, the last thing that I recorded on flashlights and disruptive technology. Uh, when a technology comes along that is truly disruptive, um, it's going to disrupt existing infrastructure companies and and people. And so there's going to be some some pushback there. And uh, automation is one of those ones that generally gets a lot of pushback. Um, I don't know if you guys remember this, but Andrew Yang uh, was a guy who was running for Democratic president way, 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 way back in the past, back when Donald Trump was still president. And pretty much every Democrat came out of the woodwork to try to beat him because they were convinced that beating Donald Trump uh, at a presidential race was going to be super easy and uh, it could be done in a fair election and anyone could do it. So Andrew Yang came out of the woodwork to try to do it. And... uh, well, the, the Democratic Party decided that he was uh, not white enough, not old enough, not connected to enough scandals uh, to to be a good candidate. So, uh, so he didn't he didn't make it. He didn't make it. Uh, uh, but he had a couple of interesting platform positions. One of them was universal basic income, which I think is hugely hugely flawed, and uh, that could be a conversation all on its own. But one aspect of of his conversation about the economy and jobs and universal basic income related to automation, one of his big platform positions was that self-driving trucks were about to destroy the trucking industry as an employer. Thousands upon thousands of truck drivers would have no jobs uh, as soon as the self-driving trucks appeared on the horizon, and he was going to appoint I forget if it was an automation czar or if it was just specifically a trucking czar, but he was he was wanting the government to heavily, heavily, heavily control this situation of rapidly advancing technology uh, that would disrupt too many industries and result in people losing their jobs. Now, uh, truck drivers were 
by and large, actually uh, more offended by Andrew Yang than they were pleased to see somebody taking up their case um, for, for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, truck drivers tend to be pretty conservative, and they uh, generally uh, liked Donald Trump very much, and they didn't like Andrew Yang all that much, just based on the color of their political party. But uh, also, Andrew Yang was making the case that as soon as a truck can drive itself on the highway without hitting anything, it will immediately take a truck driver's job because that is all that truck drivers do. And that was that was deeply offensive to some truck drivers. And also, the assumption that there is nothing else that a truck driver can do uh, than drive a truck. It was also kind of a weird political situation because, again, most truck drivers lean red. And uh, taking on an issue that is going to help out people who lean red doesn't actually impress the people that lean red very much, and it actually offends the people that lean blue. So I think there were actually a number of Democratic voters that were annoyed that Andrew Yang was going out of his way to create government programs that were supposed to help Republican voters. And uh, yeah, probably probably didn't help his cause. Now, I'll admit that I, I don't know a whole lot about the trucking and logistic industry, but my desk is very close to the loading docks at T-Rex, so I interact a lot with some of the, the truck drivers that come and drop things off here, and they have a massive amount of things that they are doing besides driving the truck. And in many ways, they are a bit like... Um, a bit like the pilot of an aircraft. Uh, most modern aircraft have pretty sophisticated autopilot systems, and the pilot isn't there for all of the situations that the autopilot can handle. You specifically want an experienced pilot who is there for the situations that the autopilot uh, cannot handle. So one of the things that uh, an, an automated truck could do, something that a truck that actually could drive itself could do, is free up that truck driver's time so that he could do additional work on the road. He could be more involved in the higher levels of the logistics supply chain industry, and the truck could do the, the basic grunt work of driving itself. So this is a way in which everybody who is a truck driver, not, not, not only do they not lose their job, but essentially they get a bit of an upgrade. They get a bit of a promotion so that the truck can drive more hours a day than they can. They can be freed up to do additional jobs for their companies. There's a whole bunch of opportunities that could potentially appear when this happens, uh, when, when trucks actually get that sophisticated. And again, uh, I think that Andrew Yang was was probably far more optimistic about how quickly we get self-driving trucks uh, and far more optimistic about how the government could handle this situation. Uh, the government tends to completely botch uh, things that the free market is handling really, really well. So when, when we want to look at examples of disruptive technology rapidly changing the landscape and rapidly improving people's lives – you, you pretty much have to look at small industries that the government doesn't feel like it has to meddle in because then you actually see how quickly stuff happens. You actually see the benefits quickly. Oftentimes, if the government wants to get involved in something, they end up protecting the old obsolete way and putting as many hurdles and roadblocks as possible into uh, the superior technology so that all of those voters, I mean, all of those employees um, that, that do things the old way, don't have their feathers rough. All of those union guys are able to finish out their careers and get into retirement without having to learn anything new or deal with any significant challenges uh, that are they're having to deal with. Now, it's not always clear uh, which side 
the government is going to be on. Like in the 1700s, the British government was clearly on the side of the guys that owned uh, the big textile mills and clearly not on the side of the people who had the jobs actually making the textiles. So much so that they would make breaking private property a capital offense and hang people who were doing it. Now, in America, it's a little bit different because in America, all of those low-level people have a vote. So at the end of the day, the government tends to be on the side of both Big business, because big business can employ big lobbyists and big lobbyists can write big checks. Uh, but the government is also on the side of the workers, generally on the side of the unions, because the unions represent uh, big voter turnout in certain districts. So the government ends up basically being on everybody's side except for the consumer. And again, there is always a cultural component. There is always a civilization-based component to how this happens. Rarely do you see technologies exist in a vacuum. And even though I believe that uh, most technologies are neutral, uh, that means that most technologies are a double-edged sword. They can be used for good or for evil. There are definitely people that would like to uh, increase profit at the expense of other people's well-being. And there's definitely people that want to use technology uh, to increase power uh, at the expense of accountability. That's, that's usually governments. It's usually governments that do that. But when you look at a new technology coming along and you look at it in a, in, a, in a situation where there wasn't a whole lot of artificial restrictions placed upon it or a whole lot of artificial uh, subsidies that boosted it, when you look at that, you generally see that new technologies that automate and make work easier for people end up benefiting people in the long run. And uh, usually uh, in the short term as well. So I have a couple of examples. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I used to be an animator back in the days before I was a product designer here at T-Rex. And um, I'm kind of a, a student of the early days of Disney animation. And in early Disney animation, animation was just so hard, so incredibly time consuming. You had the artists who are drawing the individual frames of animation doing really, uh, really brilliant art, something that is both technical and something that is very artistic. But then that artwork has to be traced onto a transparent cell. And then that transparent cell has to be painted. And then those cells have to be put in front of a background and photographed one at a time by a camera. And it just is a very laborious, time-consuming process that is just so much menial labor that, that it's, it's hard. It's technically difficult, but it doesn't have a whole lot of artistic expression to it when all you're doing is tracing somebody else's drawings very carefully and very painstakingly. And then in the 60s, the, uh, the Disney engineers were able to adapt a Xerox copy machine. Those were pretty new at the time, an electrostatic Xerox copy machine, so that they were able to take the drawings of the animators and copy those directly onto the transparent cell no manual tracing required. If the government had been heavily involved in Walt Disney Studios, they probably would have said, no, that is not allowed. Uh, you absolutely must, absolutely must do everything as slow and as painstakingly as possible to provide as many jobs as possible. Now, there was a pretty significant union uh, in the Walt Disney Studios at that time, but even that union understood, hey, this is a terrible job that nobody likes. It's going to free up all of those people who are doing the boring tracing. They still have to do the coloring. There's still lots of stuff where they can, that they can do. And uh, all of those folks were happy to have that job taken off of their plates. Uh, it took the really tedious stuff 
off of their plate so that they could focus on other things. And it drastically improved, well, not not the, the quality of the movies, because this is the 60s after all, but it improved the technical quality of what they were doing. It improved the speed. It was a great quality of life improvement for people working at Disney. And it would be easy for people to look back and say, uh, how terrible! Uh, how terrible the working conditions were, and isn't it nice that that uh, that terrible job got replaced by a Xerox machine that would instantly uh, do the work that had taken thousands of girls millions of hours over the previous decades. But this is the sort of thing that I think, in hindsight, we'll look back at various uh, jobs like truck driving, and uh, those jobs are not going to go away. But everyone's going to get a massive productivity boost if we actually try to maximize people's time, and if we actually let the free market uh, be more involved in some of these decisions, and uh, not let the government be involved. So at T-Rex, as we automate more stuff, our goal is is not to get down to fewer employees, but to try to take a lot of those terrible jobs uh, away from people and free them up so that they can do other stuff. Uh, a bunch of the Disney ink and paint gals who had just a really low-level job with no expression, they had so much experience inside of the company, so much experience with uh, the art styles and with the technology, that they actually got significant uh significant promotions like Mary Blair went on to do some pretty high level art direction within the company. And I'm hoping that that here in, uh, in T-Rex, as we take some of the guys that have really, really put in a lot of hours and really understand the ins and outs of holster making, if we can free those guys up with some automation, I think that they're going to be a huge asset to the company in ways that I, did, I can't even imagine. Um, the ideas that they will have, the time that they will have to um, come up with new products or come up with new ways of doing things or suggest the next level of automation or the next layer of tools that we need to make, um, that that is really something that I'm, I'm looking forward to. Even though I think everybody's going to keep working the same number of hours, uh, hopefully we will be making more products but we'll also have more time for better ideas, uh, better relationships, just every, everything better in, in the company. Um, now, that being said, I'm afraid that I have to announce that the worst job in the company, the most menial job in the company, uh, buffing the holsters, haven't figured out a way to automate that uh, at all. So, so we're probably going to keep buffing holsters. But if we can get everybody's job down to half of the time that they were doing before, that will free them up to buff holsters half of the time. And uh, then we can kind of spread the misery around the shop a little bit. And uh, maybe that'll be good for morale somehow. Anyhow, that's another T-Rex talk, uh, which is rapidly devolving into Isaac just talking about whatever he's working on and random thoughts that pop into his head while he records. As he tries to talk for a full 20-something minutes uh, into a microphone, um, so yeah, so no, I think we're a real podcast now. Uh, we've we've now matured into a proper, actual, real podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening, you guys. We're going to be continuing to do a one-hour live stream as often as YouTube will let us. And then I'm going to keep trying to do a slightly shorter audio-only podcast uh, as often as I have the time. Um, and I would, again... Really uh, appreciate any feedback that you guys have on topics that you would like us to cover, things that you would like us to be doing with the podcast to make it more interesting or, or hopefully more useful to you. Uh, so let us know at teams at trex-arms.com. And uh, uh, let me know how you guys are – actually, no, you don't need to let me know how you're consuming this podcast. I have, uh, I have statistics. I can actually look this up and see how many of you are streaming and how many of you are downloading. Uh, but I will encourage you to have an actual podcast app. Download actual MP3s, 
Um, I think that's a much better way of consuming content uh, and actually helps everybody involved to control that content. You know, we're probably going to get kicked off of Spotify at some point, but uh, if you have your own podcast uh, listening app uh, on Android, I use AntennaPod, and you have our RSS feed, which uh, we can control ourselves, we can always get you MP3s, no matter what, uh, what the big dogs, the big tech industry try to do. Uh, that's one of the reasons that podcasting is actually uh, one of those disruptive technologies, I think. The, uh, the internet built a whole bunch of disruptive technologies, decentralized ways of getting people information. And then Google, Facebook, Apple, etc. decided that they would really, really, really like a more centralized model uh, where they are at the center. And um, so I'm always encouraging people to, to look for more decentralized, more disruptive ways of doing stuff on the web, uh, avoiding the major platforms. So if you have the option to get a podcast app and download this podcast that way instead of listening to it through Spotify or some other platform that actually controls uh, what you can and cannot see or can and cannot hear, uh, I would say that's an option. You know, make yourself less controllable, make yourself more disruptive and have a great week.